G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, best of Q&A series, as we tackle your questions about the biblical giants. Without any further ado, let's get into it. We've still got another episode to go after this one, so... Let's get stuck into it and answer your giant questions. Hope you enjoy the show. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Odongo asks us this question. Can the present angels come down and sire giants with the human race? Hmm, That's a good question, Odongo. Thanks for sending that in. And again, if anyone wants to send in their questions, they can do the same thing that Odongo has done and visit the website, giantanswers.com, where you can submit your own giant questions to be featured right here on the show. Now, this is a question that I've answered in some detail in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, and that is available on Amazon in paperback or Kindle format. So we will talk about it here. But if you really want the full treatment, I recommend grabbing the book. It's got over 450 pages of information on this kind of stuff. So you'll understand why I can't reproduce it all here in a podcast. But to give you a bit of an idea, let's have a look at what the Bible has to say about this. Firstly, the fact that this really happened in the first place, and we actually had the divine beings referred to as sons of God intermingling physically with human women, it's not just demonstrated by a straight reading of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, but it's mentioned by other authors in the Hebrew Bible as well as the New Testament. So in Job chapter 4, verse 18, Behold, he, the Lord, put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. And again in Job chapter 15, verse 15, Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. Uh, here's one from Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 8. This is a bit more obscure. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. I mentioned this in my book. The word folly here in Job 4 is especially telling regarding the nature of the sin of these creatures. Early in the Hebrew Bible, we find that the term translated as folly here in the King James is often a reference to sexual sin. Uh, I threw in that reference to Zephaniah because if you follow the motif of the Bible concerning clothing as it relates to glorified beings, you can see that wearing inappropriate clothing is compared to being in the wrong position or leaving the place where you're supposed to be. So the sons of God having abandoned their glorious immortal forms, are now considered to be inappropriately dressed. That's what we get from our reading of Jude in the New Testament as well. Uh, there is a lot more that we could say about this, but we need to move on to answering the question. And in the process, I'm going to show why, even though grammatically the wording of the passage in Genesis 6 is ambiguous, some translators have opted for the rendering whenever the sons of God came into the daughters of men, uh, that reading is specifically ruled out by other passages of Scripture which limit the interactions between angels and human women to only one time in history. Now, let's have a look at the New Testament. We'll read First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. And for me, I think this really puts the nail in the coffin. Uh, from verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which 
he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now look at what the Apostle Peter had to say about how many times this kind of angelic incursion could happen. It is once in the days of, while, and the other term formally is actually better rendered at one time. So that makes four specific phrases which nail down the angelic incursion to the specific period before the flood. And although Peter is certainly aware of later events in the Bible that some might claim to be the re-emergence of sons of God mating with human women, he does not even suggest that this ever happened again after the flood. Now, some people might say, what about Nimrod? Wasn't he born as a giant? But the text doesn't say that he was born a giant. It says that he became a gibor, which suggests that he used some other means to become a giant, but he wasn't born that way. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Were there people having sex with angels there? Well, the people living in Sodom might have thought that they could give that a try, but the angels who came to rescue Lot and his family were not going to allow that to happen. And it's actually that story that gives the closest indication we have that this was actually a very real physical possibility in the first place. Although the story makes it clear that it was men trying to have sex with angels, so the men certainly weren't going to be giving birth to anything. It should be fairly clear from what happened at the flood that whatever was going on would no longer be tolerated by God and not be allowed to be repeated. And as we continue in this podcast series, we will eventually get to the flood and address that more fully and in greater detail. And I can tell you that is going to be absolutely fascinating. I really think that any divine beings that remained allegiant to God after the flood would certainly by no means contemplate crossing that line. And I'm not alone in that opinion. In fact, if you read the book of First Enoch, you'll find that the author of that book also held that view. And this became the dominant view in the Second Temple period. So it's not just coming from me. But what about at the Tower of Babel, when God dispersed the people? And according to Deuteronomy 32, God apportioned the people under the sons of God, who we know were corrupt and eventually led the people astray. Could they have found wives and created more giants? Again, I'm going to say no, because we have no evidence that there actually was another angelic fall after the Genesis 6 event. That means that the corrupt sons of God who fell back then are the ones who were given responsibility over the nations, and that was done as a judgment against them, in order that the punishment they received from God would be shown as justified. In other words, they've got a chance at repentance and they fail. Those same sons of God, having become embodied, suffered disembodiment at the flood and now exist in a state of limited glory and limited power, and they do not have their own physical embodiment, but they can and will use humans as vessels. And I believe that was the goal at the Tower of Babel, which resulted in the origin of the Rephaim. But the Rephaim were eliminated as a result of God giving land to the children of Abraham. With every successive generation, those once glorious entities lose a significant portion of their former glory and power. As for the rebellious sons of God, they no longer have the ability to do what they once did. And then I suppose you also have to deal with the claims of people who have encounters with supernatural entities in the world today. You have the alien abductee phenomenon and you have the things that deliverance ministers are witnessing in their ministry. Let me just be really clear about this. These entities are not to be trusted and nothing that they do or say should be taken at face value. I have no doubt that the people experiencing these phenomena consider their experience to be real and genuine, but that doesn't mean that there isn't an element of deception at work on the part of these evil entities that they are interacting with. 
But that's the interesting thing about the paranormal side of things. Everyone wants to come out and say that they've experienced something, but nobody wants to come out and say that they were deceived. And you hear all these conspiracy theories about alien breeding programs and Nephilim breeding programs and government cover-ups and all this kind of stuff. Here's the funny thing. Outside of the United States of America, you never hear this kind of thing. It's like the national pastime over there is not trusting the government. And all these theories and speculations are out there to use people's religious motivations to drive the political agenda. All right, that's enough of that kind of talk. I have actually addressed this question a number of times on the podcast. And as mentioned earlier, uh, I've already gone into great detail in my book about this. So that's all I'm going to say for now. And if you want more, you know where to find it. from the Divided Council Worldview Discussion Group on Facebook, asked, if the sons of God did it once, cohabited with the daughters of men, what is to prevent their doing it again now? You see, Chris, you see, it's all we think about. Sex, 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 all the time. And you thought we were just going to move past all that once we got started on this episode. Well, what can I say? We're giving people what they want. They want sex. They sure do. Although in this case, I think we're all hoping that the people do not get the sex because if that thing happened again, the Nephilim would come back and that's bad news for everyone. So it's a fair question then, isn't it? Why doesn't it happen again? If it happened once, why not? Well, that's what we're going to find out. I did actually write about this in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, which you can get on Amazon, but I suppose we have the time to talk about it briefly. Well, you could just refer people to your book. I could, but then I chose to answer this question after it was raised in a Facebook discussion group. So I'm hardly going to stick my hand up and say, oh, I'll answer that. Just listen to my podcast. And then weeks later, after 30 odd minutes of waffling on about ancient Babylon and Henry Ford and Star Wars, just come to the end and go, hey, you should buy my book. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so we know the old story from Genesis 6 about how the sons of God took human wives and their offspring with the Nephilim. And for anyone familiar with this worldview, we don't really need to unpack all the details about how that was possible and all that sort of thing. We understand that a reading of Genesis 6 that can account for the interaction of divine beings with human women has been the prevailing understanding of that text from the day it was written through most of our history. So the question is quite legitimate then. If we don't see any reason why it couldn't happen in the first place, then why not a second time or a third or many more times? And I guess the first thing to consider is what are the implications of committing that act as far as a divine being is concerned? For the sons of God who participated in this rebellion, what were the consequences? The act of taking on embodiment for the purpose of procreation didn't come without a cost. Look at what Jude had to say about it in his letter. And uh, this is uh, from Jude, verses 6 to 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, as Jude understands that these angels changed their form and abandoned the glory they had in their natural state so they could take on flesh and live as humans in the sense that they would experience embodiment. We have no textual sources that would indicate that the reverse is possible. So it would appear that this transformation can only be done once. That means for the divine beings that gave in to the temptation presented by the daughters of men, this would become for them a death sentence. 
Although their spirits were created to be non-embodied by nature and thus immortal, the fact that they had become tethered to the flesh meant that they would never be restored to their former glory because the flesh is mortal. But how could they possibly have been tricked into doing that? Didn't they realise that they would have become mortal and they would eventually die? Yeah, that's true. But I think they must have realised that the ability to procreate and have children would mean that they obtained a lasting legacy through the establishment of a family line that would continue through the ages. Of course, that didn't work out for them. One observation that we can make about divine beings after the Genesis 6 event is that those rebellious sons of God are never spoken of as having a physical form ever again. I'm talking about the fallen ones here, not the ones that still follow God. So whatever happened to them, it seems that their ability to take on human form in the flesh has been lost permanently. Having said that, these entities still have powers that we cannot comprehend and the ability to appear to be human may still be within their grasp. One thing that the Enochian tradition has made clear is that the fallen sons of God, or watchers as they are called in that literature, suffer great loss as a result of what they'd done because the wives that they so desperately desired would eventually die, and so would their children, the Nephilim. And the watchers would simply have to sit back and watch. Not only that, but the biblical tradition and the Enochian tradition both hold that the future judgment of the fallen sons of God would not be merciful. The terrible punishment of the gods would be incomprehensible. So if that's not an incentive for the faithful sons of God to stay in line, I don't know what is. Now, since I quoted Jude earlier and the mention was made of Sodom and Gomorrah, I should probably say that I don't think that particular story is one of angel-human interactions of a sexual kind like what we saw earlier in Genesis. I think that when Jude uses that story as an example, he's doing so on the basis of drawing comparison with the people that his letter actually speaks about, He's not trying to say that there was a second angelic incursion. And in keeping with the Enochian tradition that Jude is familiar with, we also have Peter and his letters. Peter is quite adamant that the events of Genesis 6 could only have happened at one single time in history and never again. Hence, he writes, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. There you go. I had to get a little bit of King Jimmy in there somewhere. But uh, you've got to notice how frequently he uses temporal language in this passage to talk about how this only happened at one time. Once you see it there, it really stands out. So we understand that there were reasons why the sons of God would not do this thing again. We understand from Scripture that at least by the time the Apostle Peter wrote, it hadn't ever happened again. But as Vernon asked, what actually prevents this from happening again? Good point. I'm going to have to draw together a number of threads to weave a tapestry of ideas together into a coherent whole, because although we don't get this stated explicitly in chapter and verse, the Bible can tell us what happened. Obviously, St. Peter had reasons to be so confident, so we'll have a look at what he had to say and see if we can identify anything. 2 Peter 2.4 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and uh, I'm going to quote briefly from my book, Answers to Giant Questions, on this. First estate in Jude 6, we were reading that earlier, uh, the Greek arche is the position and title of sons of God. The, their own habitation 
is the Greek oikaterion, meaning literally the body as the dwelling place of the spirit. In this context, it refers to the angelic form as created by God, and the idea created is one of being clothed with angelic glory. The angels, therefore, essentially disrobed or undressed from their former glorious state in order to cohabit with women. That word oikaterion appears in only one other place in scripture where the meaning is the same, but the roles are reversed. This time it's the human believer longing to have the glorified form of the angelic, a thing that awaits all those who will be with Christ at his coming. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 to 5, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, that is Oikaterion, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the self same thing is God who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. So these two instances of the term oikaterion tell us that it refers to the kind of body that each type of being is given, whether human or angelic. It also calls that body a dwelling or temple, indicating that it is the place from which we are meant to represent and therefore glorify the Lord. Both angels and humans share this responsibility in their respective spheres of influence. In the context of glorification and power, we learn something important concerning the nature of the chains using God's judgment of these beings, as uh, referred to by Peter and Jude. Darkness is a direct contrast to glory, which is usually described in terms of brightness or radiance. Therefore, the chains are not meant to imply physical restraint, like chains of steel, but instead the concept is one of the limitation of manifest glory. God has restrained the ability of the fallen angels to exercise their full capacities. This is why Peter stresses so forcefully the idea that the angelic incursion occurred only once. God's judgment on his rebellious sons prevented a repeat performance. But where do we see this in the Hebrew Bible? On what basis could Second Temple period authors reach this conclusion? For that, we'll consult Ezekiel chapter 31. I've talked about this a few times on the podcast and I've read extensively about it in the book. What we see here in Ezekiel 31 is Ezekiel's prophecy against Pharaoh and the great empire of Egypt. This comes about 20 years after the Assyrian Empire was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar II. So it was fresh in the minds of the world that even a great world power can fall. But the prophet had a far greater fall in mind from much further back in history. The fall of Assyria's greatest ruler, Nimrod, at Babel. So wait a minute, are we talking about recent history or ancient history here? Yes. The fall of Babel was especially significant with relation to Egypt because the powers that made Egypt so great and successful had their origins in the events of Genesis 11. The very same catastrophe that destroyed the pride of Nimrod actually enabled Egypt to flourish. So the overarching message here is that God causes these empires to rise and fall and therefore Egypt shouldn't feel smug and secure in their place. This served as a warning to the Judeans as well, because at the time they were looking to Egypt for help against Nebuchadnezzar, who in a matter of only weeks would destroy Jerusalem. After Ezekiel draws the comparison between Pharaoh and Nimrod, known here in this passage as the Assyrian, and that's not unique to Ezekiel, by the way, because the prophet Micah does the same thing. 
He begins to describe the fall of the powers in the unseen world that were behind Nimrod's rise to world domination. And we can pick that up because Ezekiel starts using the language of Eden and talking about the trees in the garden, just the way that we've been talking about that here on this podcast, particularly back in season two. This chapter is full of all kinds of references to ancient Near Eastern cosmology with regard to things like water from the deep and the cosmic mountain motif and the idea of the world tree and that sort of thing. Basically, it's all designed to say that the power that enabled Nimrod to become a world ruler was the influence of divine beings from the abyss. So my apologies if this is a little brief and requires a bit more unpacking, but I'm not about to go and repeat everything I've said on the podcast and everything I wrote in my book. If this little rundown doesn't quite make sense, I would suggest getting into some of my other material. But anyway, that's the background that Ezekiel sets up to explain what happened when the small g gods of the nations were dispersed from Babel over the face of the world. That event was the catalyst for the origin of the Rephaim, who were, of course, the post-flood giants that dominated the geopolitical landscape of the world for thousands of years after that. And it was the beginning of the end for the rebellious sons of God even if it was the driving force that made Egypt a world power. Here's where it gets interesting. The ability of these small g gods to personally indwell deified kings and produce giant offspring appears to have been only possible during the lifetime of Nimrod, because as soon as he dies, it all stops. Listen to what Ezekiel has to say about this in chapter 31 from verse 14 on. All this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds and that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height. For they are all given over to death, to the world below, among the children of men, with those who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God, on the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning. I closed the deep over it and restrained its rivers, and many waters were stopped. I clothed Lebanon in gloom for it, and all the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water, were comforted in the world below. In other translations, you'll have grieved there, grieved in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it to those who are slain by the sword. Yes, those who wear its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations. Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. Okay, so what all this tells us is that the rebellious sons of God, remembering that they lost their embodiment at the flood, no longer have the capability of empowering human rulers with divine power from the underworld as I would argue was the case with Nimrod. Not only that, but their power to influence the world is limited to indirect influence through human rulers who serve as a proxy. I realise I've said all this without actually explaining the mechanism by which the Nephilim were able to make a reappearance through Nimrod after the flood and at the Tower of Babel event. And I did that because it's beside the point of the question and would require a lot more time to unpack, which I currently do here on the podcast until we actually get to Genesis 10 and 11. In the meantime, if you want to know more about that, I would suggest picking up a copy of my book. Go to giantanswers.com and follow the links to Amazon where you can grab yourself a copy in paperback or Kindle.
So Johnny sent us an email via the website giantanswers.com and he asked, do giants still exist? Wow. Okay, well, that's a big way to kick off the new year with a question like that. Thanks, Johnny, for sending that one in. And just remember, listeners, you can send your questions in the same way by using the contact form on the website giantanswers.com. So it's a pretty simple question, and that means, of course, that it doesn't have a simple answer. Let's start with the naturalistic approach. If we consider the giants that the Bible talks about, then we're looking for people who stand quite tall, perhaps in the vicinity of six and a half feet tall and upwards of that. We don't really have a lot of data from the Bible about the height of the giants, but interestingly enough, it's the different manuscript variants that we see concerning the story of David and Goliath that give us some reasonable minimum or maximum figures, depending on which manuscript tradition you prefer. So if we take the majority of ancient sources on the height of Goliath, then we have him at six foot nine. But if we go by the Masoretic text, which is what most Bibles are based on, then we have him at nine foot nine, which is a substantial difference. The other person whose height gets mentioned in the Bible is a giant who is not named, but is described as being an Egyptian standing at five cubits in height. And assuming an Egyptian cubit on an Egyptian person, we could see that guy in the vicinity of eight foot seven. Even by Israelite standards, assuming the common cubit of 18 inches, he would measure at seven foot six, which is still really impressive. And there are no divergent manuscript traditions to cast doubt on the height recorded for that guy. So if we're speaking only in terms of height, that would give us a fairly reliable indication of what kind of size the biblical giants really were. And you know we can find people of fairly substantial height today, maybe not more than eight and a half feet tall, but it does happen from time to time. However, there is a substantial difference between modern people who reach that kind of height and these ancient warriors that are described in the Bible. And that really comes down to physique. You just can't be a warrior if you're suffering from something like gigantism. Modern people of the kind of size described in scripture wouldn't even be able to stand under the weight of the armor they were wearing for that kind of combat, never mind being able to fight as effective soldiers. Of course, I realize that in the current times that we live in, there have been stories of giants encountered in real combat. The most famous of these would be the story that's come to be known as the Kandahar Giant. Now, I've been curious about this one for a while because it certainly would be an eye-opening encounter and it would be great to be able to substantiate it. Unfortunately, we have no material evidence to back up the stories told by those who allegedly had these, this encounter with a giant cave-dwelling freak that allegedly killed a number of American soldiers. I'm not saying that it never happened or that these people are lying. What I am saying is that I remain sceptical until something more substantial than a story or a sketch allegedly from memory, comes to light to back up the claims. Uh, there was another story recently, actually, along similar lines. Uh, and, of course, people have claimed conspiracy and said there's a big cover-up, and that's why these guys don't have any evidence to support their story. I, I would just like to point out that nobody is covering up the fact that you have guys like Robert Wadlow, Xiao Ming, Shaquille O'Neal, Leonard Stadnick, Sultan Kosin, Andre the Giant, or any number of other really enormous people getting around in recent history. Some of those guys are still alive today. Sultan Kosin is the tallest guy alive today. He's a touch under eight foot three. So if you're going to claim that there's some kind of a cover-up because giants prove the Bible, and that's why people are trying to hide them, then you have to explain how it is that people who are just as tall as the biblical giants are clearly not being covered up today. Okay, so as I said, that's a naturalistic approach and just looking at things from a purely physical vantage point. 
the next logical question is what about supernatural beings? What about cryptids and monsters and that kind of thing? Wouldn't the giants fit in a category like that? Yeah, that one is harder to deal with because now we're outside of the realm of material evidence. Now we're getting outside of purely physical beings and maybe even shapeshifters. But again, we have to define our terms. If we're going to talk about giants in some kind of transcendent form that's not limited to simple physicality. And I've probably already played my hand here because I did refer to the Kandahar giant just now specifically relating to the question that we're addressing here today, which is concerned with the giants as they appear in scripture, and do they still exist? We need to compare apples with apples. You will notice as you go through scripture that the giants are always either warriors or divinized kings, not just regular people. That means that there's some kind of association with a particular social class that connects them to the unusual physical traits manifested in these people. When you look at the example of Nimrod, you see someone who became a giant and he wasn't born like that. In my book, I argue that this was actually the normal way that giants occurred in populations. It wasn't a case of heredity, so much as some kind of thing that was done to achieve that result, and it appeared in certain social and religious ranks. This is what the Bible called the iniquity of the Amorites. It's not so much what they were doing as what they were becoming, but you just don't see that kind of thing anymore. Even in situations where the ritual and religious context still exists, we don't find giant hominids emerging as a result of those practices. And that comes down to something that I was saying recently about the re-emergence of the giants. The supernatural power that was at work behind the origin of the giants in the Amorite culture simply isn't there anymore. It doesn't work. All that's left is an empty shell of formalities and reenactments, but there's no substance to the rituals and there's no power manifested in the participants. The giant clans of the world are no more. God has cut them off. As I say, I've spoken about this recently on the podcast, and I also wrote about it in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. Indeed you did. And, uh, you know, we might still see odd random traces of giant people here and there, but we don't see the kind of people that the Bible speaks about, entire tribes of giant warriors or divinized kings with the power of the gods at their fingertips, at least not in the modern day. True. I should probably point out, though, that everything that I have said or published about giants up to this point has been focused on what the biblical data can sustain. I don't research paranormal phenomena outside of scripture. It's not that I don't think there's anything out there, but I choose to limit myself to a particular field of study. And there are other people out there who are quite happy to go about chasing giants all over the world. I'm not going to do that. So I just want to say for the record that I don't rule out the possibility that the giants who were driven out of the biblical lands did indeed spread to other parts of the world. There is a chance that populations of giants did exist for substantial periods of time after the biblical authors wrote them out of the pages of history. I think it's highly improbable that they still exist, but it's not impossible. When I say highly improbable, I am referring to the statistical chances of such a tribe being able to maintain any kind of genetic integrity in the face of booming world population and continual interbreeding. I've said many times that it only takes a handful of generations to completely normalize human DNA. So in the space of even a few hundred years, an entire giant clan could be eradicated from history simply through interbreeding. Mm. So, Tim, you mentioned uh, earlier cryptids and other strange creatures. Well, actually you did. But anyway, cryptids and other strange creatures seem to be getting increased exposure these days since everyone has a camera and the sprawl of urbanisation is intruding constantly on previously undisturbed natural habitats. Perhaps there are some remnants of divine mixture with the good creatures that God created or even with the Nephilim, but we're a long way from being able to say with any certainty what these things are or if they're even real at all. And I say that even as a person who's experienced the paranormal on several occasions. I'm starting to think that our fixation on the question of what is it when we see something strange is blinding us to the real issue, which is 
why am I seeing this? What is the purpose of this encounter? What function did this event serve in my life? And as far as cryptids go, this is another thing that I covered earlier on the podcast series when people send in questions about the Nephilim interbreeding with animals. We don't have any decent manuscript evidence to suggest that this was even happening in the first place. The usual references that people will bring up in support of that idea are usually only talking about things like breeding mules or eating meat. I don't deny that people are seeing weird stuff out there. I just think that it's poor form to try and manipulate the Bible to substantiate your experience. The Bible doesn't have to say something about everything, and the Bible is under no obligation to validate your experiences or your worldview. So the bottom line in all this is that if you want to know whether the strange creatures that the Bible mentions are still present and active in our world today, I can't give you a 100% definitive, secure answer, but I would lean towards a high degree of skepticism regarding anything that anybody has to say unless there's something substantial to back up their claims. Now, we're running out of time here. We need to wrap this up. So the answer to the question, do giants still exist today, is maybe. But just to be clear on this, if we really were talking about giants the way that the Bible talks about giants, then we would need to see populations, not just some random individual who happens to be a bit taller than average. I don't want to hear about people rushing out and tackling some guy in the street and beating him up because he looked like a giant. This is one of the devil's favorite games, of course. Make people suspect that somebody else is the enemy. And then you've divided people who might otherwise have been united against him. Don't fall for it. Every human being bears the image of God, even if he happens to be exceptionally tall. And the respect and reverence that we have for God should be on display in the way that we treat our fellow humans. Have you heard of the Lovelock Cave Giants found in Nevada? I have indeed. Apparently in the early 1900s, a few men were searching a cave, and in that cave they found ancient human remains. The odd thing is a few of those bones belong to people who stood up to nine feet tall. This is particularly odd because they date back to 2000 BC when people are thought to be much shorter than today. Very few of these bones remain but up till recently, our museum had several skulls, old sandals and clothing that all seemed to indicate they belonged to very large people. Since then, they've been returned to the native tribes in the area. They were given a, a ritual burial. Stranger still, they had red hair, which is not what we'd expect from people in this region. Other reports from across the United States exist of people finding bones of seemingly giant people but no evidence exists of those findings. This is the only place where they have pictures and very recent examinations were held of the remaining artefacts and remains. So my giant question would be, this is what Joe says, what can we make of red-headed giants in the Americas 2,000 years ago? Just a random race of people who happened to be larger than average humans at the time and they died out. Could they be related to the giants we read about in the Bible? Could this be more myth than reality? Will we ever see little Timmy again? Tune in. Okay. Uh, yeah, all right, Joe. Well, thank you for that question. It's definitely one that's worth asking because it is something of a cultural phenomenon, particularly in the United States. But I don't think there's anyone who's interested in the study of the giants who hasn't heard about this find in the Lovelock Caves. I'm a bit short of time in this episode, so I won't go into any great detail. But since the question is focused on the possibility of connection to the biblical giants, I think we can just focus on that aspect because we don't really have the time to be getting into archaeology and all that kind of stuff. 
The main issue that we have in trying to establish any kind of connections to the biblical material is the plain and simple fact that the Bible does not concern itself with what happens to people who drop out of the focus of the biblical narrative. We have the conquest of Canaan, which was supposed to be a driving out of the giant clans from the Holy Land. Many of those resisted the push and ended up being destroyed in military campaigns. However, some of the giants were indeed driven out of the land and they simply got up and walked off the pages of Scripture. The Bible does not tell us where they went afterward. The Bible's not written about them. The Bible's the story of the people of God and the seed of the woman, not the seed of the serpent. What we do know about the giant clans is that they came about as a result of the Amorite religion practiced in Mesopotamia in the days of Nimrod. From there, populations of these giants spread back into Canaan and also Egypt. Some of these Egyptian giants made their way into Phoenicia and from there returned to Canaan by way of the sea. That's where guys like Goliath and his brothers came from. Therefore, both the origin and the ultimate destination of the giant clans was in the Holy Land. But as I say, some of them did succeed in surviving the conquest by fleeing from the Israelites and deserting the promised land. And as a starting point, it is interesting to note that these giants were known to be of Phoenician descent. So where did they go? It would probably be easy to ask where they didn't go, because there are stories of giants all over the ancient world in pretty much every direction from Jerusalem. Yeah, well, that's true. But but as far as the question of how we ended up with red-haired giants in America over 2,000 years ago, it is that red hair which gives us a clue. Most likely, they came just like the pilgrims did from the British Isles. Tales of red-haired giants come thick and fast from the mythology of the Celtic people. It wouldn't surprise me at all to find with their extensive knowledge of seafaring inherited from the ancient Phoenicians that they would have been able to make that voyage and also to bring with them certain artefacts that betray their heritage. Unfortunately, the many thousands of historical artefacts recovered from the Lovelock cave system suffered from a combination of sloppy handling, really poor archeological practices, looting and pillaging and squandering in the hands of entrepreneurial travelers. I'm afraid that whatever remains of the discoveries of the Lovelock caves, there really isn't enough known about those artefacts to be able to construct a detailed provenance of them. And that's a terrible shame because we may have lost a wonderful opportunity to be able to point back to the scriptures with authority and show the reliability of the biblical text from these finds. Nevertheless, the fact remains that the existence of these supersized remains is well attested by indigenous and colonial witnesses alike. Whether these remains could once have pointed the way back to the Holy Land or not, these findings in no way undermine the narrative presented by scripture. The giants of Lovelock Cave do not prove scripture, nor do they necessarily corroborate it, but there's a high degree of consistency with the biblical narrative when taken in conjunction with what we know from the stories of other people groups. So in this case, I think we ought to be prepared to entertain the idea that this could well be a myth that turns out to be true. That's a wrap for this episode of the podcast. And we're going to do this one more time next week with some more questions before we get up to date and ready for the flood narrative of Genesis 6, for which, of course, I'll be joined by my good friend and co-host Chris Bather. So we look forward to seeing you then. Stick around. Hope you enjoy these compilations. 
And uh, please keep sending in your giant questions and grab a copy of the book if you haven't got that already. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help, but a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode, so if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.